First John chapter two, verses one through six. The Prince's Poison Cup is a book written by Dr. R.C. Sproul. Many of you are very familiar with Dr. R.C. Sproul's writings, but maybe you didn't know he writes kids' books. He has a whole series of these books that are intended to help kids learn very deep theological truths, but on their level. So on a way that a kid can understand these deep theological things. And if it can be explained on a kid's level, often that's helpful for us as adults as well to be able to explain it just in a simpler way, to just drive home the realities of who God is and what he's done for us. And this book really teaches, seeks to teach the idea of the atonement. And it's all about a little girl named Ella. And Ella gets sick and she has to take this really yucky medicine. She doesn't want to take her medicine. And grandpa comes to visit her. And she asked Grandpa, why do I have to take this yucky medicine? I already don't feel good. What good is this yucky medicine going to do? It's not going to make me better. And Grandpa goes on to tell the story about a kingdom and a king and his people. And they have a great fellowship and unity together. And the only one rule was don't drink from this one fountain. And what do the people do? They go ahead and they drink from that fountain. And then they find that that fountain that once was so pure and clean has now become poison and that their hearts that at once were hearts of flesh had now become hearts of stone. And the king seeks to have his people back. He wants to redeem them. But the only way to do that is if the king will send his son. And his son goes and he wants to please his father. He wants to redeem those people and bring them back. But he has to go and he has to drink from that fountain. And he knows the poison's going to kill him, but he knows that's the only way to be able to buy his people back, the only way to please his Father. And what an awesome picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We celebrated communion this morning. What an awesome picture of who he is and what he has done and the lengths that he went to buy us back, to redeem us. Because he did that for us, he is our advocate, then before the Father, and he's the propitiation for our sins. What an awesome picture. That can be understood then on a child's level, but drives it home for us in a fresh and new way. So we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. What we'll do is we'll read these. We'll see how Christ is our advocate, how he's the propitiation for our sins, and then what we ought to do as a result of that. So let's read these verses together, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So verses 1 and 2, we can walk as ones forgiven. Verses 1 and 2 again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we see John starting this chapter in a very different way than he did in chapter one. He starts with my little children. That's a term of endearment. Very, very different from what we saw in chapter one, where he just started, boom, right off. Just right from the gun, he's going. So my little children, these people are special to him. 
those that he's writing to are special to him. Commentators also note that it's probably because he is quite a bit older than them that he's saying, my little children. He's advanced in age. Certainly, he's older than them in their walk with the Lord. So they're new believers, young believers anyways. And he has the opportunity as a spiritual father then to them to be able to say, my little children, and to address them differently than this first chapter. So the first chapter was, was we. So he's saying we. We write these things to you. But he's saying, I write these things to you. It's almost a level of assurance then for those that are reading that. This is John. John's writing this. It's him saying, hey, guys, this is me. I'm writing this part to you. It's kind of like you leave a voicemail for somebody. Maybe you leave a birthday message, and there's a few of you leaving that voice message. You might both be saying happy birthday, and then you know, maybe it's your parents or whatever or your kids, and they say, oh, this is dad. Dad's saying this now. Say, oh, okay, this is, you know, it gives you that level of assurance. This is who this is that's talking. John's giving them another level of assurance here. This is me. I'm writing these things to you. We can almost view the first chapter as an introduction, a very deep, very theologically rich introduction, a long introduction, but we can almost view that as an introduction. And we're going to see from here on out in the book of 1 John where he says, I am writing to you. I write these things. So this is John. He's assuring them that this is who this is that's writing. And he says, this is my purpose. I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. Nice and straightforward. Nice and easy to to say, okay, there's the point. He's writing this that we might not sin. But what was the point in the previous chapter when he was writing? We look at verses 3 and 4, and we see here's why he was writing to begin with. Here's what he says. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So there's one. There's the first purpose, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. So there's the second one. So first, that they might have fellowship. Two, that they might have joy. John and those with him are writing. They have joy. But those that are receiving this and accept and and have that fellowship, that unity with Christ and with each other, they also have a joy. So fellowship and joy, two purposes that are in chapter 1. So it makes sense then that he's writing here in chapter 2 that they might not sin. Because what kills our fellowship and what kills our joy? It's our sin. Our sin kills our fellowship and kills our joy. So he's writing that they might not sin. As a believer, do you realize that you have, within God's word, you have every tool and resource that you need, along with God the Holy Spirit inside of you, that you might not sin? You have that at your disposal. It's right there. Every tool, every resource that you might need and God the Holy Spirit living within you that you might not sin. So you would think by now we'd be able to live and not sin. And yet that's not quite the reality that we see. We do still choose to walk in darkness rather than walking in light. And that's exactly what John sees here. He says, if indeed you do choose to sin. If anyone does sin, because he, he understands human nature, even redeemed human nature. We still live in a world that's cursed by sin. We're still living in a world that is surrounded by sin. We are no longer under the power of sin. John knew this. Paul knew this. And, and we have Romans 6. We are no longer slaves to sin. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm not bound to obey sin anymore. Before Christ, I was. I was a slave to sin. After Christ, I'm a slave to righteousness. 
I'm a slave to him. I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm no longer bound by the power of sin, but I still live in the presence of sin. I still have to choose to walk in the light as he is in the light. It's still a choice to be made every single day. It's still a battle to purposefully walk in the light as he is in the light. Paul understood this. He got this. And he writes Romans 7, verses 13 through 25. And you can read those verses for yourself in their entirety. But he understood the struggle that we face every single day, the battle that's at hand. And if Paul can say something like this, then we don't feel so alone in this. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. If Paul struggled with those things, you know, it, it helps us to understand. I might struggle too, but Paul understands it. It's a battle. It's a fight. Here's what he says later on in that chapter. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Victory is found in Jesus Christ. Sin is real. The battle is real. It's tough, but we have all the tools necessary to be able to fight sin. It's not necessary, though, that we sin. That's something that is noted here. We have all the tools necessary to be able to fight the sin. It's not necessary that we sin. But John says, if you do choose to sin, if you do happen to walk in the darkness rather than to walk in the light, because we see, already saw in chapter 1, 6, 8, and 10, that chance to say, you know, I have fellowship with him when we really walk in darkness, or the chance to say, I have not sinned, or I have no sin. So we have a choice to make. Am I going to walk in the light, or am I going to walk in the darkness? If we do choose to sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. We have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Advocate, here's the idea of a defense lawyer in court, or as one commentator put it, the image is that of the royal court at which a suppliant needs someone greater than himself, one who has the ear of the king to plead his cause. Jesus is the one greater than ourselves. He's our defendant. He's our advocate. He stands before the Father. So what does God the Father see when he looks at us? Because we talked last week, he does see us. He does see us. He does see our sin, because God sees all things at all times everywhere. But Romans 8.1 reminded us he doesn't see us and our sin to condemn us. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does he see then in us? He sees Christ's righteousness. Our advocate is standing right there before the Father. He sees the sacrifice of Christ. He sees the debt that Jesus Christ paid on our behalf. There's no way to condemn us anymore because Christ is our advocate. He paid the debt already. It's already totally and completely paid. There's no sin hanging over our heads. No stain of sin that's there that didn't get washed clean through his sacrifice. There's no long-lost, hidden uh, debt out there somewhere that we've long since forgotten about. No stain out there of sin that we didn't see. I was thinking this morning about what it was like when the girls were really little. And they're not, it's not so much this way anymore, but especially when they were just little babies. And you'd go to feed them, and you'd give them a bottle or mush food or something like that. And then you think you're all dressed up, ready to go to church. And you come to church, and you go into the bathroom to, like, I don't know, wash your hands or something. And you look in the mirror and realize, oh... There's stuff all smeared down you, or it went down your back because somebody spit up or something. There's no hidden stain of sin 
When we've been forgiven by Christ, it's gone. All of it's gone. He totally and completely covered the debt of our sin. There's no hidden stain there. Nothing that God's holding over our heads someday to say, oh, you forgot that one. Remember this one? Way back there. Long time ago. Yeah, that one. Uh Uh-huh. He's not holding anything against us because Christ is our advocate. We wear his righteousness. He totally and completely paid the price for our sin. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's who he is. And the, the article, the, isn't even in there in the original writing. It's just Jesus Christ, righteous. That's who he is. And we get the benefit of wearing his righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 tells us, and Philippians 3.9, and we'll look at another verse in just a little bit, where we are the righteousness of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. He's our advocate. He stands before the Father saying, this one's mine. This one's forgiven. He stands before the Father on our behalf. And why can he do this? Why can he stand before the Father on our behalf as our advocate? It's because he's also the propitiation for our sins, as we see in verse 2. So propitiation, that's a big word, big Christianese word, but it's a really, really important word. It means the appeasing of wrath, especially God's wrath against sin. Not everybody likes to think about this word. Not everybody likes to use these big theological terms, but this one's important. This is a really important word for us to understand, whether we remember the word propitiation or not. Sometimes it's hard to remember some of these big terms, uh, no matter how long we've been a believer. Some of these just don't stick in our head, and especially for kids. Johnny and I worked with kids for a long time, and I remember hearing about one little boy who was trying to remember a memory verse and share it with his teacher. It's Isaiah 53, 6, which says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And there he is standing in front of his teacher trying to remember all we like sheep have gone, all we like sheep have gone to Australia. <laughs> well, not quite right. All we like sheep have gone astray. So big word, sometimes it's hard to remember. What is that word? Why does it matter? Why is it worth me trying to even remember that big word propitiation? It's important because Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Sin is the very antithesis of who God is. It grates against the character and nature of who he is. God is absolutely perfect and holy and pure. He has to punish sin. He has a righteous wrath against our sin. He's just to punish sin. And as humans who sin and bear sin within us before Christ we then are the ones that face the wrath of God because of our sin. God's just and he's right to do that. It doesn't give us warm fuzzies to think about the wrath of God against our sin, but he's just and he's right to punish sin. So here we have Jesus as the propitiation for our sins because he paid our debt. He took the wrath of God completely, entirely on himself, on the cross, and met the requirements of the law to then pay for our sin as that sinless, perfect lamb who was slain on our behalf, who had no sin of his own to pay for. He paid your sin. He became sin for you. As one who had no guilt to feel, no guilt of his own, he took your guilt. He had no blame, no shame of his own, and yet he bore yours, that he might be the propitiation for our sins. To, just, to, to take God's just wrath against sin on himself and totally and completely pay for that. The spotless 
lamb. And he did it all long before we ever deserved any of that. We still don't deserve it, but long before we ever had any chance of saying, you know, I've earned this. We don't have a chance because Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us long before there was ever any hope of us ever earning any kind of salvation or forgiveness. When we were totally unlovable, he loved us in this way and that he died for us. So we see two very important truths about who God is in this verse. We see God's just wrath against sin. But then we also see his absolutely incredible love, both of those culminating in Jesus Christ. We see the wrath of God satisfied in the only way possible by the greatest display of love imaginable. We find that culmination of God's wrath and his love in Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins, for your sins. And not just you in general, you specifically. He says you. That's you sitting there in your seat right now. He's the propitiation for your sins. That's you watching online this morning. He's the propitiation for your sins. He died for you. He paid the price for you. Last week, we had the opportunity, and we spoke through the chance to be able to have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we spoke this morning, and and we had communion, remembering what Christ has done for us. What did you then do with that opportunity? If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, I hope it did two things for you. I hope, first, that it drove you to a greater appreciation of what Christ has done to remember that he died for you. His body was broken for you. His blood was spilled for you. That you don't have to face the wrath of God because of your sin. Jesus faced that for you. And now you can stand before him as one forgiven. You can stand before him as a child of God, a joint heir with Christ because of the work that he's done. So it ought to drive you to a greater appreciation. And it also then ought to drive you to share that with somebody. Maybe you can think of somebody right now that you could share that with. Maybe you already did. I hope you did. But it ought to have done those two things for you. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, why haven't you done that? I can't answer the question for you. Only you can answer that question between you and God. But it ought to drive you to understand what he's done for you. He's a propitiation for your sins specifically. But then he also says, not for your sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And I think just that phrase alone drives home the reality of the specificness of you, the personalness of the first you for your sins, but then also for the sins of the whole world, for everyone else as well. He died for their sins. He's the propitiation for their sins. Because 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 3.9 says, he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's not wishing that any should perish. So... He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Sin is universal. God's wrath against sin is universal. Sin has to be punished. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. God has to punish our sin. But Jesus died that all of our sins might be forgiven. He died that we all might choose to believe in him. But we also need to know that we need to believe in Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He offers this free gift of salvation to everyone. Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But we have to know to call upon the name of the Lord. They have to know who to call on to be able to receive that free gift of salvation that he purchased on their behalf that he's offering to them freely. They have to know to call on Jesus Christ. 
As children of God, we can walk in confidence knowing that our sins are forgiven, that our advocate stands beside us saying, this one's mine. We can walk as one's forgiven. And then as we walk as one's forgiven, we've got to walk in word and in deed as well. Our words and our actions need to line up in word and in truth. Let's look at uh, verses 3 through 5a. Three through five a, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says I know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know Him. Know is the it's in their first part of the verse. It means an expressing absolute immediate knowledge of a fact once for all. This is fact. This is truth. This is how you know, irrefutable proof that this person knows him. He's going to do what he says. Says if we are in fellowship with him, we know that we, the reality that we have in him, that we know him, we're going to keep his commandments. It's just that simple. We're going to keep his commandments. And it reminds me very much of what John already wrote in John 14, 15, which says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is saying if we really do love him, it's going to be seen in the way that we live. Others are going to be able to look at our lives and see him. So why do we keep his commandments? Well, because we love him. We love him, so we obey him, not out of duty, not out of some sort of gain, but because we really do love him, and our lives are going to demonstrate that life. We're not going to be able to hide that. Words aren't enough. I can't just say that. I have to show that then in the way that I live, that I have fellowship with him. I need to show it. I need to display it. If I truly do know him, if I truly do love him, then that's going to be easy. It's not going to be a hard thing to convince me to obey the Lord. If I truly do love him, I'm going to want to display that. I'm going to want to show that. I'm going to want people to be able to see those things that I claim are true in my life. And we can claim all kinds of different things about our lives, but it doesn't necessarily make it true. So, for example, I love cycling. I'm a cyclist. Love doing that. That's been my sport for a long, long time. Um, But I'm not really a good cyclist, and I certainly couldn't say that I'm a professional in any way. I could say that, but then my life wouldn't match up with the reality of what is. I'm not a professional cyclist, and you can just see that very quickly when you look at my life compared to somebody who actually is a professional cyclist. A professional cyclist spends 30 to 40 hours a week on their bike, training and racing. I'm happy if I can get five to six hours a week on my bike. Maybe eight. If I'm on vacation and I get a little more time, maybe eight hours throughout the whole week. So, you know, that's, that's vastly different. Looks nothing like a professional cyclist. They're very careful about how much sleep they get. They make sure that every night they're getting all the sleep that they need for their bodies to recover, to be ready to race, to train, and that they're just at optimal performance. I'm happy if I get to sleep through the night once or twice every month. You know, it's just that age where the girls wake us up. So it's just how it is. It's just that point of life. They're very meticulous and disciplined about what they eat. Their diet is very controlled to make sure that they get enough food, they get enough energy, but that they're at the optimal weight for performance. 
So they're very careful, very disciplined. I am very careful and disciplined to only take one frozen Reese's peanut butter cup out of the freezer at a time. I might go back three or four times, but I only take one out at a time. So very, very different. You look at my life, I could claim I'm a professional cyclist, but it looks nothing like what it should if I really was a professional athlete. The opposite is seen. So whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Just as simple as that. If we say we know him, we don't keep his commandments, we're a liar. The truth is not in us. You're known by your actions, not your words only. Actions speak louder than words is certainly true here. Now, I can make my actions cover up who I really am inside. I can do a whole lot of really good stuff. But we already looked at verse 6 of chapter 1, which says, if we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It's going to be seen for what it is. I can't cover that up for very long. Eventually, you're going to see that my actions and my words don't match up. Both need to match up. I need to be speaking the truth, and I need to be living the truth. Both of those have to be on the same page. Both have to be right. I have to be able to, if I'm going to say that I know him, I got to walk that out. I have to demonstrate that in the way that I live. If I truly do know Christ, if I truly do have fellowship with him, I have to show that. If I say I love Jesus, I have to walk that out. I can't just say I love Jesus and make that enough. When I was in Bible college, this really got driven home to me. Because when we're in Bible college, you know, I'm going off to school and I'm expecting, I'm going to Bible college. Everybody there is going to be a believer. Everybody's there because they love Jesus. It's not why everybody's there at Bible college. I saw it at the school I was at. Jenny saw it at the school she was at. It's not specific to the schools we were at. Even when we came back to New England Bible College, on a smaller scale, there were examples of this, of people who said, yes, we love Jesus. And for me, I was going to play soccer. So here I am in this soccer dorm. And at first, you know, we have chapels and we have classes. And yes, we love Jesus. And as soon as that dorm door closes at the end of the night, they lived like anything but and I was exposed to all kinds of things that shocked me, that I thought, here I am at Bible college, and all these people, we're supposed to be saying, we love Jesus. And then all these things are happening that show that they don't love Jesus. Their words just say that. I was frustrated. I was angry. We need to let our words and our actions match. If we say we love Jesus, your actions ought to show it. We can't just say it, and that's enough. If that's what the world sees in us, if that's what the world sees when we say we love Jesus, but then we live anything but like we live, love Jesus, is it any wonder they call us hypocrites? Is it any wonder that then they see us trying to claim the moral high ground when really at times we act no better than the rest of the world watching on? We have to be oh so careful that our words and our actions line up that we display Jesus, the life of Christ that we say is in us, that we know him, our actions need to line up then with what we're saying. So we think about ourselves when we're sitting in traffic and somebody cuts us off or somebody um, you know, comes up too close behind you and they're hitting their horn. How do you react? They might not actually see how you react, but you know. Does that display Jesus Christ? Are you displaying that you know him in the things that you do or even the things you say in your own head? Maybe you say it out loud in your car and nobody else hears it but you and the Lord. Are you displaying that life of Christ in you? Or at work, when something happens and it does not go the way that you're hoping it was going to, and you're frustrated and you're angry, how do you display that? Do you display the life of Christ? 
Or is your response very similar to how the world would respond? Perhaps we're slandered by somebody who has a very different religious view than we do, or a political view, or a stance on homosexuality, or on abortion, and they're slandering us as Christians. How can you believe that? How can you take that stand? Who do you think you are? How do we, how do we respond? Do we respond in such a way that displays the life of Christ? That people can look at us and say, they know Jesus. That's why they're different. That's why they don't respond in the same way that everybody else does. They know Jesus. Do our words and our actions match up? Do we display that life of Christ that is in us? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is, perfe- is perfected. Again, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love him, we're going to do what he says. So why are we obeying? Why are we keeping his word? It's because we love him. The love of Christ is what compels us to obey him and to do what he says. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He says, a slave obeys because he has to. If he doesn't obey, he'll be punished. An employee obeys because he needs to. He may not enjoy his work, but he does enjoy getting his paycheck. He needs to obey because he has a family to feed and clothe. But a Christian is to obey his heavenly father because he wants to. For the relationship between him and God is one of love. And the love goes both ways here. God has loved you perfectly. He's loved us perfectly. The love of God is perfected in his love for us. So he loves us perfectly, and then we respond by loving him in the only way that we know how, which is obeying what he's told us to do, following his word, living that out in our lives. We can walk as ones that are forgiven. But then as we're walking, our words and our actions need to be lined up as well. And then we can walk just as he walked. Verses 5b through 6. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Our words and our actions need to line up. If we say this is who we are, this is how we prove that. This is how we show that we are his, that we belong to him. Manhood stones or lifting stones are a very Scottish thing. It's thought that these originate in Scotland as a way to be able to prove that as a young man, you say, I'm a man now, so prove it. Here's how you prove that you are a man. So this would have been, uh, each clan might have had their own lifting stone. There are various examples all around Scotland and England and even around the world there are examples of this. One such stone is the inverse stone. It weighs 260 pounds. And you're supposed to pick that stone up and they vary on what you're supposed to do with it. Some just pick it up to waist high, some chest high, some over your head, some push it over a wall or something along those lines to prove you are who you say you are. If you are a man, you're going to prove it, and you're going to do this. Uh, Another set of stones are the Dinny stones. You can see them there. They're even bigger. They weigh 733 pounds combined, one stone being much bigger than the other. And the whole idea is to stand over top of those stones and pick them up by their rings and, and to lift those up. And guys and girls have done this. They've been able to lift these stones. All around the idea, originally, of these stones proving that you were who you said you are. If you are a man, you're going to prove it, and you're going to show me in doing this. So they're proving themselves. They're showing just exactly who they are. So how do we know we're in him? 
How do we know we have that fellowship? In him just being another way of saying the fellowship that we have with him. How do we prove that? The proof is going to be in where we're abiding and how we're walking. How do we know we're in him? How do we prove it? We're abiding in him. We're abiding. That's the idea of staying. Or John 15 talks about the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine or the branches. Just as that branch that's going to bear fruit, hopefully, going to bear fruit, needs to stay connected to the vine to be able to bear any fruit, to have any life of itself, we need to stay connected to Jesus. That branch, if it gets broken off or it's cut off for whatever reason, has no life in and of itself. It finds its source, support, and end in that vine. As soon as that branch is disconnected from the vine, it has no life in it, and John 15 says that it's good for nothing to be thrown in the fire and burned. As believers, we have to find our source, support, and end in Jesus Christ, connected to him, staying connected to him in every way possible. So what are you abiding in? What are you abiding in? Where do you find your source, support, and end? It's really easy at times to try to find our source, support, and end in things like our career. You know, that's who I am. This is what I do. And whether we like it or not, there's our end. You know, it's our source, it's our support, and whether we like it or not, the end of who we are. But if we try to find our source, support, and end in things like our work, or our family, or our hobbies, we're going to come up empty. There's no life in and of those things on their own. might be wonderful things. There's no life in and of those things on their own. Even ministry can be a trap at times. We think, I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm serving him in this way. I'm doing these things. But what can happen is that you find I'm doing these things just to say I've done these things for God. And you're not really abiding in him. You're just doing good stuff. The difference between serving him and and really obeying him, abiding in him as you do ministry, is you saying, here's what I did. Here's how I serve the Lord. Verse, here's what God did. We followed where he led, and look what God did as we were faithful to serve him. It can be a trap to get stuck in ministry and thinking that me doing all of these things is what's good and what's right, and still totally miss the fact I have to abide in him. I have to find my source, support, and end in him. Not what I can do, not the strength I can muster up on my own, not through my own efforts, but I find my source, support, and end in Jesus Christ. And you'll find that your walk is not for you anymore. It's just for him. You're walking in him. You're abiding in him. You're walking as he walked. Abiding and keeping his commandments are tied very, very closely together. If you're abiding in him, you're going to keep his commandments. If you're abiding in him, you're going to keep his commandments. Because all of your strength to carry on is found in just him, in him alone. You'll find then as you're seeking to obey his commandments, seeking to walk as he walked, you're going to abide in him. You can't walk in him unless you are also abiding in him. Let's look at the rest of what John 15, 4 and 5 say. Say, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're not abiding in him, we can do nothing. Nothing of any eternal value. It's impossible to walk as he walked without also abiding in him. If we're to walk as he walked, 
And if we do walk as he walked, we're proving that we belong to him. So what proves that we belong to him? We walk just as he did. The way that you live your life ought to demonstrate that you are in him, that you have fellowship with him, that you bear the life of Christ within you. So your walk demonstrates the life of Christ. Or does it? You've got to think about that for yourself. Think about your own life. And you can't compare yourself to anybody else around you in this room, anyone else you know. The only person we can compare ourselves to is Jesus Christ. That doesn't actually make that any easier. But the only person you can compare yourself is to Jesus Christ. Do I reflect his life? When others see my life, when I think back over my life, can I see that I am doing my best to abide in him, to reflect his life? Let's just look at four different things that we can look at to evaluate for ourselves, not comparing ourselves to anyone else but Jesus Christ. Jesus had a love for God's word. He loved God's word. Do you have a love for God's word? Do you intentionally put time and space in your day for his word? Only you can answer that. How about prayer? Jesus loved prayer. Jesus was very intentional about spending time with the Father in prayer. Are you very intentional about spending time with your Heavenly Father in prayer, making space for it? Because if you don't make space for it, it probably won't happen. certainly won't happen as it could. You have to make space for it. Put prayer in there. Do you love people in the way that Jesus did? Jesus loved people that were unlovable. Jesus loved people uh, when he's just trying to go find some quiet. You think about the feeding of the 5,000. He's taking his disciples across the sea to be able to go to the other side, to have some quiet, and there's a crowd of people already waiting for him. I'm not sure if I would have responded as well as Jesus did in that case, but you see how Jesus loved people. He loved people, even the people that were unlovable. How do we love people? How do we respond to people when they are unlovable, when they're intentionally mean? How do you love people? And then do we do everything for the glory of God? Every single thing that Jesus did, the entirety of his life was for the glory of God the Father. Can you say that about your life? Your work, your play, your family, whatever it is, is that all done for the glory of God? Now, you can't compare yourself to anybody else in this room. You can only compare yourself to Jesus Christ. Am I reflecting his life? Do other people see him in me? Does my life reflect him? Am I walking just as he walked? Are you going to do this perfectly? You won't do this perfectly. You're not always going to love him just exactly as you should. It's not going to happen. You're not always going to abide in him perfectly. Often we try to find our own uh, strength in ourselves, you know, work ourselves up, work through this problem, work through this situation, and we find I've just been relying on myself. You're not going to abide in him perfectly every single time. Are you going to walk as he walked perfectly with no missteps, no mis miscalculations? You won't. You won't. It's not likely as long as we live in this sin-cursed world, but we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. He's the propitiation for our sins. We have an advocate in him. We can love him. We can walk as ones that are forgiven and love him. We can walk in word and in truth and abide in him. Find our source, support, and end in him. And when we find our source, support, and end in him, we're going to find that we walk just as he walked. 
And the rest of the world watching on is going to be able to look at us and say, there's proof that they're in him. Here's who they say they are. Here's the proof that displays they really are who they say they are. They walk just as he walked. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we can walk just as you walked. Lord, it's a battle every single day. A battle to fight ourselves, a battle to fight the temptations that this world throws at us. But I thank you that we have your spirit. I thank you that you promise that as we abide in him, your life is in us. Your life flows through us, Father. We don't always get it right. We don't always do it perfectly. But I thank you that we bear your righteousness. I thank you that you're our advocate, Jesus. You stand before the Father on our behalf. And you say, this one's mine. I pray that we are spurred on to remember the sacrifice that you've made for us and all that that means for us while we're here and then as we go out into our week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.